This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this uh, seminar, part of our current issues in assessment series. My name's Jill Grimshaw. I'm uh, part of the Cambridge Assessment Network, which runs these uh, seminars. Um, so I'm delighted to see so many people here today, and in fact, we are expecting a few more. So um, hopefully they'll, they'll find uh, their way in shortly. Today we have two speakers who are talking on the, the same topic. Um, how do examiners reach judgments? And when I was talking about this to somebody earlier, we said, we always manage to have really topical uh, things in our, uh, in our seminars and presentations. So um, we have Talia Isaacs from the University of Bristol, and we have Victoria Elliott, who's now at the University of Warwick, um, doing the talks today. It's interesting to note, I thought, when I was looking at this, how we use different terms to describe essentially the same job. What originally in the past was called looking over. The examiners would look over scripts and so on. And now, since then, variously, we use terms like marking, examining, assessing, rating, and so on. And I was thinking, you know, they're all similar, and yet they presumably they've, they've got different... We've got different reasons for using these different words, different emphases. Now, let me introduce um, the first speaker. Victoria is... Um, she was a teacher in the north of England for several years, and then she went to Oxford University to study for an MSc in Educational Research Methods. Um, you correct me if I make a mistake on one of these things. Uh, she, she wrote her master's dissertation on uh, key stage three national curriculum tests. And she was going to continue to work on that, I think, for her DPhil, um, at which point they cancelled those tests so she couldn't work on them. So indeed, in, instead, she went to look at A-level um, examining and that's really what she's going to be talking about today. Um, now she's working on the PGCE programmes at Warwick University. Um, so, thank you very much for coming, um, Victoria. She's going to talk about A-level marking in English and history, um, both subjects which are notoriously difficult to mark. So, I'll uh, hand over to you, Victoria. Thank you thank very you. much. Thank you, Jill. Um, I think you've done a remarkably good job of introducing why I have so many affiliations <laughs> on my first slide. I should probably also just say that I was funded by the ESRC, so I'm very grateful to them, and I'm supposed to say that whenever I present any data from my PhD, so there we go, job done. Um, I'm also really grateful to be here, because when I started off at, at Oxford, um, there wasn't a, a centre for educational assessment there, um, and I was the only person in the entire department who was interested in assessment, and I felt very lonely, um, but I used to come over to Cambridge and come to seminars in this very room, um, and it was so nice to feel that there was a kind of community out there who were interested in the same things that I was. So it's kind of coming full circle, and, and I'm very, very pleased to be here. I'm also feeling a little bit as though I might be going to teach my grandmother to suck eggs, because a lot of the research which I drew on came from Cambridge Assessment, because they're the other people who do most of the good work in, uh, in looking at examiners in terms of UK examinations. Anyway, patchwork. Um, Conveniently, given that I wrote this title in abstract a year ago, I've actually recently taken up patchwork quilting again in a kind of attempt to do something with my evenings. Um, and the thing about patchwork is you take scraps of fabric from different sizes, from different patterns, and you, you piece them together in a pattern, uh, which coincidentally is pretty much the approach which 
I'll say I took, I have taken, um, with the theory that's used to explain how examiners make their judgments. Um, and I should explain here that when I, when I was thinking about um, examiner judgments, I'm, I was thinking in terms of kind of Simon's principle of bounded rationality, that there's, there's only so far that the human brain can go in terms of rationality. Um, and we have well-documented limits to, to working memory, um, well-documented limits to the, to the time that examiners have to spend when they're marking A-levels. Um, and basically, whatever's going on there inside the brain, there's, there's a lot of things happening. There's lots of different cognitive processes. And studies of examiner cognition have, have drawn on many different fields, um, and if you like, different fabrics uh, for patchwork. Um, from, we've kind of gone from judgment and decision-making, um, cognitive psychology, um, expertise, connoisseurship, things coming from other areas of educational research... And I think it's one of the, the joys of education as a discipline that we can take things from all those different fields and we can try and break down those silos and kind of fit them together. But they are scraps of fabric uh, and they don't always fit together perfectly um, and they don't necessarily always fit together coherently. Sometimes they overlap. Sometimes the stitching is a bit messy. Um, and I'm going to, as an English teacher, I'm going to stretch this metaphor to breaking point and beyond. Um, <laughs> I'm notoriously bad in my courting life at choosing the right colours and patterns to kind of complement each other. Um, and my patchwork tends to be kind of functional, but not necessarily beautiful. Um, and I ask you to forgive me if that's the case for the, uh, the theory today. Um, and I think one of the reasons that I, uh, that I have dragged this, this metaphor and will continue to beat it until it is dead... Um, is that actually it seems that we can, to me, that we can look at the cognition of examiners in the same light. They use lots of different cognitive strategies to make decisions, and there's, there's a patchwork of strategies in place. Sometimes they overlap, but it's not always even, it's not always straight, but it is functional. So what I'm going to do this afternoon is just to introduce um, kind of a number of different pieces of, of the fabric of theory, and as I do that, I'm going to introduce some evidence um, from the data that I collected during my PhD, and at the end, I'm going to return to this idea of a, of a patchwork process um, of examiner cognition and, and how those pieces of, of theory and research, maybe how we can fit them together, if we can fit them together. Um, first, then, I should probably tell you a little bit about the data that I'm going to draw on. Um, so, I, as, as Jill said, I studied examiners marking history and English A-level um, scripts in the January examination session. And the principle behind choosing January was that they're all good, in inverted commas, with the caveat that there's like 20 pages of footnotes on the word good in that context. Um, but they are all good examiners, so that in theory, anything that I found um, couldn't be dismissed as saying, well, that's because it was a bad examiner, that's because they were making bad judgments. Um, they were all returners, um, they, were all, they all had loads of experience in marking the paper they were marking, and marking it well. The exception to that was one of the two English meetings, which was a new module, um, uh, but in that in that group, there were four or five, maybe six people in that group um, who were all very experienced on other papers. Um, and the room, you know, had a chief examiner, a chair of examiner, another principal examiner. They were all team leaders. They were all pretty good people. Um, so I gathered data from two units each of English and history. Um, I went to all standardisation meetings for those. And I went to one pre-standardisation meeting, which was for the, um, one of the history papers. Two of them were live, two of them were voice over internet protocol, uh, two of them were large, two of them were small, and that's distributed evenly over the, um, over the subjects. Um, at the large meetings, I 
recorded the whole plenary session and then I went with one team and had one team which I was focusing on. Um, and then I complemented that with three sets of think aloud data from three um, examiners throughout their marking period, um, which, is, which is a very small sample. It wasn't ideal. I was aiming for a lot more. Um, but it, it kind of complements the stuff from the training meeting. And overall, there's about maybe 40 hours of recordings um, with 40 or more participants involved in it. Um, so let's begin our quilt then. Um, and this is an examiner rather than a quilter, but, but she's thinking. Um, one of the main building blocks which has been used is cognitive heuristics. Um, which, and a heuristic is a, is a rule of thumb. It's kind of a rough guideline for making rough and ready decisions, which are mostly correct. And the mostly is important. Um, they're unconscious, not deliberate, and they can lead to bias if they're applied inappropriately. And, of course, it's when they lead to bias that it's easiest to see them um, in life. They're the brainchild of a U.S. psychologist called Daniel Kahneman, who's, uh, who won the, he won the Nobel Prize for them, actually. Um, and he's recently published a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, which is definitely worth a read if you're interested in this kind of thing. So the four main heuristics are availability, representativeness, anchoring and adjustment, and affect. And I'm going to deal with the first three first. Um, and I'm going to characterise them in terms of how they might crop up in examining um, in a marking context, even though their main theoretical context is actually in judgments of probability and, and rationality. So availability is um, the idea that the ease with which you can think of a, an example in your head um, alters how you predict the frequency of that event. In other words, um, the statistical probability of an event isn't as influential on your prediction as whether you've experienced it yourself. Um, and so, for example, we've got here um, an examiner who gets, a, she gets an essay, should be worth full marks, um, but she thinks, actually, um, I've never seen an, an essay with full marks. I don't think that's very likely. I'd better give it 29 and not 30. And as the examples will go on to show, this almost never happens uh, because, because people take steps against it. Um, we also have representativeness, um, which is basically the idea that, that how much X looks like a Y tells you, predicts your likelihood of whether you think it is. So how much does this A-grade script look like an A-grade script? Does it feel like an A-grade script? Um, and so the example I've picked out here is the idea that you might have something which is a very good content-wise, but the handwriting and spelling looks terrible, and so you look at it and you go, oh, this is a terrible paper. Um, and when I say you, I mean a very bad examiner. Um, and equally, you might have something which is very beautifully produced, but actually it's, it's total rubbish. Um, and, and so that's to do with looking like, feeling like. Anchoring and adjustment is um, basically you, you, you form your, your initial judgment around an anchor point. You pick a spot and you're like, right, I'm going to start with 15 and I'm going to work up and down from there. Um, and so, for example, uh, you might use the first essay. If there are two essays in the script, you might use the first one. And if it was an E, then you probably wouldn't you wouldn't expect them to then produce an A on the second essay. Similarly, um, you might use the first paragraph or the first page, and once you've kind of plumped for a number and you're moving up or down from that number, you're much, you're much less likely to, to move the correct distance. You're going to stick very closely within it. Um, and I'll talk a little more about, about how anchoring can lead to bias a bit later on. 
So, so I've, just got, I've only got one small patchwork in my quilt and I've got a whole like, bunch of pieces already there. Um, and there's actually quite a lot of um, evidence in the data for, for all three of these heuristics. Oh, sorry, I'll stick with anchoring just for a minute. Um, and actually, some units, some, some exam boards on some papers mandate the use of anchoring and adjustment as a, as a technique. They say, pick a band. When you've got a band, plump for the middle mark in that band and then move up or down from there. Um, and it seems like a fairly typical practice. I don't know how widespread it is because I haven't sat in every single module across the country, but that, to me, is something which I've experienced and which, which seems to be fairly usual. Um, and interestingly, what that does is to, to remove some possibility of bias um, and from the, so given, the, given the tendency of people to stay too close to their anchor, which has, which has been shown in various bits of research. Because if you're going for a band which is about six marks wide, perhaps, assuming that you have put it in the right band, which is a big assumption, but we're going with that one, um, if you start in the middle, then you're never going to be more than two marks away, the chances are, from the, the correct mark. And again, pages of caveats and footnotes. Um, so in theory, this should mean that you're within tolerance. If we're talking about an essay which is marked out of 30, a couple of marks is neither here nor there in terms of... Um, kind of worrying about it. So, which I thought was quite interesting, that, that, that there are people out there who are using anchoring adjustment as a deliberate practice. And because it's a deliberate practice and people are thinking about it, in theory, that's mitigating the possible bias. Um, so, to illustrate the, the place of heuristics in the examining process, um, and I'm, my data throughout this is just going to be snapshots here and there, it's not going to be big things, um, I'm, I would like to offer for your consideration the selection of exemplar material by principal examiners. So what might be referred to as the anchor scripts or the standardising scripts or the sample scripts, the, the scripts that are either given out as examples at the beginning of the training day or, um, or that are marked during the training day um, and then taken home and, and used as reference. Um, and they're chosen by principal examiners on the basis of their marking kind of the two or three days bef- between the end of the exam... or between the time the exam is sat and the time that the examiners are trained. Um, and they're supposed to show a range of marks, that kind of thing, and, and they're supposed to be representative of the range of marks. And what's interesting is that, that their choice of scripts repeatedly demonstrates a concern about the impact of availability and representativeness. Um, so, for example, um, you nearly always get multiple provision of top-level scripts. So if you, if you think back to that, that example of availability bias, that, oh, I've never seen a full mark script... No one who has been to a training meeting for A-level scripts will never have seen a full mark script. They will definitely have seen at least one and probably two. So here we've got a principal examiner from one of the history units who tells his teams, you've got several scripts now that are in the level five, which is the top band, by the way. And you might go back and think, well, this is a far, far better level five than the William the Conqueror one. That doesn't mean that the William the Conqueror one is not level five. You see, it does display the necessary qualities to get into that level. The fact that the other two scripts demonstrate those qualities in spades is unimportant. Um, I, th- I think what's, there's lots of interesting things about this. I'll try and restrain myself. Um, but he's trying to show, A, that, that when, you, when you sit down to mark, um, that you've always got an example of a top-level script there, and you can go, oh, yes, they, they do happen. He's also giving you 
what, a, what is representative, representative sorry, of a top-level script. And the interesting thing is that the first example he gives is the one that sits at the bottom of the band. So your representative idea of a top-level script is actually the minimum, it's the baseline, not the wow script, as somebody else called it. So I think the, the other two were kind of almost full marks. The William the Conqueror were just scraped in, and the other two were higher. Um, and in some ways, that's, that's almost an anchor point for you, uh, for, for an examiner as well. And this kind of example is kind of typical of the way that you can see heuristics at work in the data, because because I'm not working in an experimental condition, I'm having to go into the, into the wild, as it were, and see what I can find there. Um, this, this is an overlap here. It could be availability, it could be representativeness that's driving this. Um, maybe it's both. You can't really see exclusively which it is, um, what's going on. Another principal examiner apologised for the lack of marks, some scripts right at the bottom. He, um, he said that, that, I'm sorry, I just couldn't find any in the two or three days. I, I looked through hundreds of papers and I couldn't find a bottom band mark. Um, and some, it might be possible, to, you might think, well, that's bad, that's going to be, lead to bias, because if they don't have an example of a bottom band mark, they're going to assume they don't c- crop up. But actually, if the principal examiner hasn't managed to find one in the three days while looking for one, very hard, that's probably a correctly working heuristic. It's saying that actually the prediction rate would be there's not going to be that many people in this entry who do have uh, low-level marks. And I think that the, um, the speed at which they have to choose their, their sample material, those two or three days, actually means that they can rely on heuristics too and, and not necessarily find the right one. Um, this is from the English meeting, which was... Um, this is the new module. So the marks weren't set. In, in most other training meetings, the principal examiner had made the decision beforehand. He brought it. It's your job to learn what the principal examiner thought and to adjust your standard to the principal examiner. This meeting was more cooperative. They were setting the standard together through the meeting, and then by the end, it was set, and that was it, when they'd agreed. So he says, can we look at J? I found this a bit of a problem one. It's a very short answer. Oh, golly. And so they spent a couple of minutes reading. Good stuff, though. Hard to take exception to any of it. Hardly a word wasted. I can't believe that wasn't planned. They probably spent more time thinking about it than writing. But it's short, isn't it? It is, but it's small writing. It's literally getting twice the number of words to the line, and it it literally was, I can assure you. It's discriminating, no doubt, not wasting a word. And they carried on for about eight minutes with the principal examiner going, but it's very short, and everyone else going, but it isn't. <laughs> and, and look at all these positive things. Um, and then the decision, they, they actually put it into the top band. He'd intended it to be a, to be a low-level script. They put it into the top band. Um, and he says, I was thrown by the apparent brevity. Um, and this is the interesting thing, is that they're not overturning the idea that shortness equals not so good. They're saying, this isn't short. Um, and you get that again. There's, there's one, of, one of these examiners then goes home and is marking her own scripts. And she gets to a script and she spends a long time going, is it short? Is the writing small? Is it? Is it? Which is it? Um, and, and kind of looking at exactly how much content it's got in order to manage to, to decide that it is, in fact, um, not short. It has tiny writing. Um, and one of the interesting things about this is that they, they then label this a, de- a deceptive script and, and put it aside just in case they needed to use it in the summer because they thought this was a really good sample script. 
Not because it's representative, but because at first glance it isn't. It's atypical. Um, And so they're selecting scripts which are showing you a representativeness, um, kind of warning you against that leading to bias. Um, And through the data, mostly representative characteristics didn't say, didn't lead you to a particular band. They weren't actually helpful in, in associating with a particular level. You would look at a representative characteristic and be like, well, it's typical of a lower script, maybe the bottom two, or it's a middle script, the middle three, or it's a top, so the top two. And there's only one characteristic um, in, all my, in all the hours that I recorded that is associated with a specific band, and that's the word adult, as in, this is written by an adult presumably metaphorically, given that it's A-levels, um, or the writing is completely adult. And if somebody said it's adult, that meant it was going to go in the top band, usually that it was going to get full marks, in fact. Um, but it's not clear whether... Because adult is, is just a descriptive term. Actually, was that just something that they felt to them? They felt it in their gut, this is the top marks, this is full marks. And then they, they labelled that as, as adult. Um, to go on to that, that final one, uh, the final heuristic of affect, um, this hasn't been as thoroughly applied in examiners, um, and probably because it's the emotional bit, um, and it's the- theorised later than the others, as you can see. It was theorised in 2000 instead of 1974, um, although um, Kahneman has said that he thinks this should go in to the three main ones instead of anchoring. And basically, this is your gut response. It's your, it's your kind of feeling of gut-like, dislike, this is fab, this is terrible. Um, and obviously, it's more damaging if you, if you don't recognise that you're reacting in that way, then you might, that might lead to bias. Um, Vaughan, who works in EFL, I believe, um, saw this and she characterised it as the laughing rater. She had someone who, who would laugh. Every time they got a script, they would burst into peals of laughter about it. Um, and Victoria Crisp here has, has studied, published a study which... Um, including a number of different reactions like frustration um, and amusement. What I saw was the tutting writer. They would get a script and they would go... Um, but but the, the, basically, I'm, I'm not really going to talk about affect today because I don't think it takes part in the, the cognitive process that much because what, it was always accompanied by a statement going, I feel like this about it, but I'm not going to let it affect my marking. I feel sympathetic but it's not going to affect the mark I give it. And so there's always that kind of hedge. They recognise it, they dismiss it. Um, so maybe, maybe in our patchwork metaphor, it's, it's a border piece that's kind of tangential to the main pattern. It's there, but it's not, um, it's not working in, as, a, as a main driver. Um, and so the, there's a kind of principle behind the heuristics, between availabil- behind availability and, and representativeness that says... We've got some comparison going on here. Essentially, you're comparing it to something in your head, you're comparing it to something that you've seen before. Um, And comparison is a a fundamental kind of principle of judgment um, to the extent that Donald Laming, who's kind of the guru of of human judgment, if you like, um, has said that the the judgment is all relative. There is no such thing as judgment which is not relative. Um, And Alistair Pollitt's done some very interesting work using paired comparisons of scripts um, as an alternative to marking and and just just comparing um, to to kind of apply this principle. Um, And 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 there's been some some very interesting work done here, I think, looking into how you might use paired comparison for, um, for, uh, not borderlining, equating, um, and, and then for grading. 
Um, for any given script, an examiner can compare it with multitudes of things. It can comp- they can compare within the script um, between essays. They can c- compare within the script between assessment objectives. Um, they can compare between scripts um, so that they've got the current script and a previous script or the current script and a standardising script or the current script and an imagined script. And bear with me on that one. We'll get to that. And all of those comparisons cropped up during um, my data. It also appeared at all stages of decision-making. Examiners were comparing while they were reading things. They were comparing at the point they were making their initial decision. And it turned up when they were checking that decision after they'd made it. And this is an example of, of that um, nice, deliberate comparison with the standardising script in order to, to kind of check that they'd made the right decision. So she's, she's given her, her live script... 37 marks, say. So that's putting it above M, not as far as L. And she goes back to look at, look at M. It is better than M. No, no, it is better than M. What does M get? 35. So no, that's not overmarking it. Um, so you can see there that, that it was done in a very deliberate, intelligent way, applying this idea of comparison. It also happened completely naturally, that people would just compare without even thinking about it all the time, and it would, it would come and go like that. Um, this is a slightly contentious one it's very interesting this is um, a history team leader sorry, principal examiner who, who suggested to his team that the fact that they were marking both essays together meant that they should compare those two essays and if they were a long way apart um, then they might want to reflect on that and see if, go back and check if they'd marked this right which is of course the classic um, halo effect. It's, it's illusory co- covariance to say that, that if one, one um, is an, an A, then the other one is probably an A too. Uh, he wasn't saying definitely. He was just saying, go back, check that again. Um, what's really interesting about this is that on other papers, on other, other modules, and in the other subject, um, the examiners would have been horrified if they'd seen this. Um, and they were, they were very, they were like, we wish we could see the other script but we know that it's not allowed, and it's just terrible to do that. So it's much better not to see the other script. So that was quite interesting, um, I thought. I could produce hundreds of examples of imagined script comparison. Um, And as you can imagine, the most common one is that hypothetical question when they're all sitting around a table and they go, so this paper, it got 15, but what if it had been spelt a little bit better? And then the, exa- the, exa- the team leader has to go, well, if it means it's a little bit better, then it might, might have been worth 16. Um, or what if it had included this? What if it had done this? What if it had done that? Um, which, of course, are very difficult questions to answer. Um, but what I want to show you is actually a quite surprising kind of comparison with an imagined one. And again, this comes from a team leader. Um, and they look at, they've just looked at two top-level scripts. Um, but he wants to draw their attention to the weakness within it. And he says, um, I think the weakness of both the ones we've looked at so far was something that you know really top candidates will actually have seen in that question, which wasn't addressed by either of them. Would you sort of think that there's anything that both of them missed out on that you might be expecting from a really strong candidate? Um, and it takes a while and a lot of guidance, but eventually they identify the factor that he's thinking about. 
And the thing that strikes me is, and is the current educational assessment climate, it strikes me quite strongly, a number of people have said to me over the last two weeks, well, the thing about sitting your exams is, it's not about knowing the right answer, is it? It's about knowing what answer the examiner had in his head when he wrote the question. And this really strongly reminds me of that. Um, this is about what's in his head. And so the team, the team start worrying about it. They find the factor. They start worrying about these two scripts, and he, he backtracks. Uh, and says, no, no, you know, virtually every candidate, if they, if they interpret the question that way, we don't want to depart people from getting a really high mark. Um, and, and he says that we need to keep in touch. And this is, of course, one of the strong features of, of the marking system is the idea that you, um, that you kind of look at how people are answering and you decide if, if that means you need to adjust, adjust the standard altogether. So what we have here is a case where the kind of imagined, the, the imagined ideal answer is actually subordinated to the comparison with the actual answer, which is terribly reassuring. Um, so I could spend hours delineating the use of comparison. Uh, I'm not going to, don't worry. Um, so I'm going to, to move on to another kind of related context, um, which this time comes from, not from, but via the educational context. Um, which is something which is known, often known as guild knowledge, which you may or may not have heard of. It's a term that was um, coined by Sadler in the 1980s, um, and it's, it's a description or an explanation of how a group of people can make qualitative judgments based on multiple internal criteria that are not expressed on the page, not using mark schemes, but they can just look at something and they can make a judgment of it. Um, and, uh, and, then, and that can be the same judgment as all the other people within their guild, if you like. And so that's, that's one of the ways that's used to explain the way that teachers' assessment works. Um, and what's interesting is that the idea of extended experience as a key to judgment is something which is also used in um, the model of connoisseurship, um, which kind of comes from the field of judgment theory through, um, through arts, like exams in dancing, exams in music, that kind of thing, where they don't, they don't have a mark scheme. You have an expert who sits there and is a connoisseur. He watches you, he judges you, that's it. Um, and that's been championed by Robbins as an, an alternative to marking within the school system that we should have connoisseurs uh, instead of mark schemes. Um, but that was about seven years ago, I think, and nobody's really taken him up on it, so I think it's gone. Um, but it's also considered... Sorry, it's also similar to the role of the idea of the expert, which is another way that people have sought to explain how people can overcome cognitive limitations and do something which they apparently shouldn't be able to do. Um, and that's by virtue of extended practice. So we've moved from experience within a, within a guild of experts to, to connoisseurs who spend a long time developing expertise and to experts. Um, examiners aren't experts. The standard definition is that you have to have 10,000 hours of specific practice. And if we had to give our examiners 10,000 hours of specific practice before they were allowed to mark anything, I don't think anyone would ever get anything done. Um, so... And also there's the fact that expertise seems to be kind of basically an extended working memory, a way to recognise more patterns, and therefore it's just actually just pattern recognition rather than being able to adapt to something like an essay, which I, I think would be much difficult, much more difficult. Um, but what we do have is this idea that you can kind of catch the standard from someone else, um, which is obviously quite a, um, a popular conception of the, of the training meeting for examiners. And I kind of see these as being akin to the mental frameworks model, um, which Dylan Williams has called construct reference assessment. Um, and Victoria Crisp 
drawing on the the, uh, the field of psychology has termed has used the term um, prototypes, uh, which are kind of mental models of um, likely typical responses. Um, and Joanne Baird similarly has uh, has used it when she was studying grading of papers, and she felt that the English the English graders were using internalised notions of standards, not the material that they've been given. So we've got a number of different frameworks here, literary, sorry, literary, theoretical approaches, um, which are kind of cut from the same fabric, if we return back to the, to the patchwork metaphor for a moment. And they're called different things, and they appear to be made by different people, but actually they've all got the same print on them. They've all got the same pattern. Um, and we're basically looking at, at a pattern which shows a mental framework, which is an idea of a structure, um, and examples slot into that structure in relative positions so that you can hold your essay up against this structure and you can see where it fits and where it looks like it fits and where the typical things... And now I'm going back to representativeness again. And it feels like this is a structure and you can just identify where something is, feels like it belongs. Um, and it's been suggested that, that basically the scripts become one long discourse and that's that's Vaughan again in the EFL context. She suggests that when you're just marking one script after another, they start to become one long discourse in which you're kind of interacting with each other. And that kind of that resonated with some of my markers. Um, sorry, my participants. Um, this is a, a team leader. And basically what she's saying is 50 scripts is what you need before you've got the framework going. Before that, it's difficult. Once you've got 50 scripts, you've got your framework in place. Boom, you can just do it. Um, and she says, unless you try it, you can't do it didactically. You've got to. And, and, and she drew pictures in the air. And what she means by that is you can't teach someone how to use a mark scheme. They have to actually practice it and try it. And then they understand. And after they've done about 50 scripts, uh, they've got it sussed, she said later on. So to me, that suggests that representativeness is bigger than just heuristics. Um, and I think that's probably in my patchwork, that's one of my main panels, is representativeness. And one of the things I'm going to do now, not now in the presentation, but now in my life, is to go back again and look at representativeness a bit more um, and think about how it could be used to tie these different areas together, to, to maybe to link the different areas of theory together. Um, so we've looked at some different bits and pieces of patchwork um, I've talked about representativeness again, and in a moment I want to talk, return to comparison just briefly. But first, I want to take you on a slight detour through psychology. Um, I heard Bob Logie speak last week, who is a, a psychologist at the University of Glasgow, um, an eminent professor of psychology at the University of Glasgow. And I think most, most of us are familiar with the idea of, of cognition as being a a kind of set of things where you have some sensory input, you've got working memory, you've got long-term memory, and you've got a central executive in the middle of that, which would be like your, like your Intel chip in your laptop, if you like, that's driving it. Um, and for kind of the last 15 years or so, he's been suggesting an alternative model, which is that we don't just have the, the central executive, we don't just have one thing in the middle, um, which has also been called attention, but actually there's a number of different executive functions there that are um, different tools, if you like, that you can draw on. Um, and maybe if one person is doing a task, they're using a lot of this tool, but they don't, if they don't have enough capacity there, they might use a bit of this tool as well. Whereas another person might be using all of this tool and a very small bit of this tool. 
um, or they might just be using one or the other. And the point is that you can't see from the outside which of their executive functions they're using. Um, and I think that that... I'm telling you this because it's a quite a neat summary of, of how I kind of see examiners um, in, the, in the way that they, they think, and that can kind of be exemplified through the use of comparison. They, use, they all use all the different touchstones for comparison. They all do it at different stages of the time, of the, of the marking process. They all do it consciously and without thought. But they don't do it with any pattern, any regularity. There's no, it's not that we can say, all examiners do this. All examiners do that in terms of comparison. They use comparison as and when they need it, in the way that they need it, that is the most useful to them at the time. And I think this is, it's a kind of similar story with, with the other cognitive theories that have been used to create models of examiners' co uh, cognition. There's ones I've mentioned here, albeit in a quite whistle-stop way. There's others that I use, there's others that other people have used. And, and you can provide evidence, you can, you can get evidence to show there's all sorts of things going on. Um, there's no single thing that you can point to and go, well, that explains it all then. That's the single theory that says how examiners are, are thinking. Um, to kind of misappropriate Fisk and Taylor's term, I see them as, as cognitive misers. I think they're using whatever information is most useful to them at any given point in time. Um, so they are choosing them. They're not choosing them consciously, but they are choosing them. And it really is a patchwork process. Some of those patches are bigger than others. Some of them overlap. Um, but we can start to join together some of the different fields from which this theory is drawn. However... For the purpose of my extremely stretched metaphor, whose stitches are beginning to sag somewhat, um, we've, got a, we've got a patchwork with two central panels. We've got comparison, um, which I'm afraid you'll have to take my word for it, is used hugely, and representativeness, which again is used hugely. Uh, and they're surrounded by a kind of hodgepodge of other pieces of cognition um, and fabrics and shapes. And that's basically how I see the cognitive processes of examiners of English and history. A-level. And I'm going to hand over next to um, Talia. Talia told me that she's, um, she, she's been in this country um, for about a year or so, I think. So um, as you will soon hear, uh, Talia comes from Canada and she completed her PhD at McGill University. Now she's working um, as a lecturer at Bristol University. Um, she has Her major research area is the assessment of second language speaking and listening, with particular interest in rater effects. So I was talking before about the different terms that we have for people who are assessors, markers and raters. Um, she's about to start a British Council-funded um, project in investigating level distinctions in the IELTS pronunciation scale. And as you'll probably know, we are very proud of IELTS in this organisation. So, Talia, would you like to um, take the stand? Thank you. Uh, thanks, Jill, for that introduction. Um, I'm really delighted to be here to be able to share my work with you. Um, today, uh, I will be talking about radar effects, um, presenting a quantitative study. And in particular, I'll be talking about um, radar cognitive variables and uh, whether they influence um, judgments of second language um, speech, in particular looking at pronunciation and fluency. Um, just to say at the beginning that this study is conducted in a low-stakes research context, um, but around the 
end of the talk, I'll be talking about some implications uh, for higher stakes assessment, if there are any. Um, so, of course, there's this question of what's in, what's in a score. Well, ideally, a score in the context of speaking assessment would perfectly reflect the quality um, of the test taker's speaking performance. Um, of course, uh, we'd try to extrapolate that um, to the uh, underlying ability or construct um, of course, nothing is ideal in this world, and um, in radar-mediated assessments, there are, of course, many other influences um, that could potentially, or that, that do influence judgments of speech. So, um, of course, we've got the properties of the speech, um, and we hope that the score will reflect those properties in the test taker's performance. Um, there are also radar effects, radar characteristics, um, uh, the task, the speed, there can be task effects, uh, as well um, properties of the rating scale, right, that uh, raters need to um, take the complex complexity, their complex impressions of the performance, and try to distill those into um, constraining rating scale descriptors. And then there are um, unmodeled um, sort of residual effects that come into play. Um, and today, I'm going to um, focus on, as I said, Raider cognitive abilities and whether those um, could bias, in the untechnical sense of the term, uh, assessments of second language speech. Um, this is a study that I conducted with a Canadian um, co-investigator, Pavel Trofimovich, and uh, it just recently appeared in Applied Psycholinguistics. Uh, I'll be talking about some supplementary analyses. Um, so just to provide you with a brief background of the study, um, of course, in, uh, because of um, globalization and advancements of technology, there is greater mobility that has brought together people who were once oceans apart. Um, and in many contexts, especially, well, university campuses is one example, English is used as the medium of communication, as the lingua franca, among native and non-native speakers. Um, now, post-secondary institutions are seeking to uh, increasingly attract a diverse student body to attract top funding. Uh, there's competition for, sorry, to attract top talent, and, and there's competition uh, for these students. Um, at the same time, post-secondary institutions have the responsibility for providing valid assessments, um, and in particular, speech. Now, most speaking components of tests currently used in academic settings, uh, such as the IELTS and the TOEFL, are scored by human raters. Um, now, of course, these judgments, these rater judgments, are used to make many high-stakes decisions. Admissions is one of them. Of course, um, as we said, um, there, the, the score that's assigned might not simply uh, reflect the uh, speaker's performance, but also individual differences among raters themselves. Um, and so just to give you some background on the research that has been conducted, uh, in the area of second language assessment, there has been, uh, there is a growing body of research on raider background characteristics, the effects of variables such as gender and the raider's first language background on their judgments of speech. Um, in the psycholinguistic literature, the focus has been on not on raters, but on second language learners. And um, there has been a focus, among other things, on raider cognitive variables. Um, for example, musical ability, uh, phonological memory, and attention control, the three variables we'll be talking about today. Um, and the, the effects of those variables on learner attainment uh, in a second language. Um, however, there is a research gap that 
that this study seeks to address, which is that um, I, I don't know of any study that has looked at individual differences in rater cognitive abilities rather than learner cognitive abilities and the effects of that on scoring second language speech and in particular constructs that are typically measured in pronunciation research. And so um, the aim of the study, therefore, is to examine the relationship uh, between variability in uh, rater cognitive variables and their judgments of uh, second language pronunciation and fluency. Uh, we'll be looking at three cognitive variables, um, and I'll spell those out in turn, talk about um, uh, the variables themselves and then the uh, way that they were operationalized in this study. And then three um, measures of speech. They're rated measures um, typically used in the pronunciation literature. But first to focus on the cognitive variables, first we looked at phonological memory, which is a component of working memory that retains phonological information for a short period of time. Um, it's involved in many different aspects of uh, speech processing and comprehension. Um, for example, the perception of speech, uh, perceptual learning of words, and actually subjective judgments of uh, speech as well in, uh, in judgments of first uh, language speakers. Um, now, in terms of um, thinking about possible effects of uh, individual differences in phonological memory on judgments of speech, um, we weren't sure about the exact nature of the relationship that we would predict. So um, in one, on, on one hand, raters who have a larger phonological memory capacity are retaining um, you know, more speech in their short-term memory. Um, this could lead them to be overly severe in their judgments if they're over, overly sensitive to deviations in the speech from the native speaker norm. On the other hand, it could lead them to be more lenient. They could, because of being able to retain the speech in their short-term memory for a longer period of time, um, process the speech more holistically, which could lead to more lenient judgments. The second variable we looked at was um, attention control. So uh, this referred to both the ability uh, to maintain a focus on a single task and to um, alternate attention between two simultaneous tasks and um, the ability to optimize that switch in attention between two different sets of stimuli. Now, attention control um, in the context of speech um, for example, uh, well, it's related to enhanced processing of relevant phonological information um, and inhibited processing of uh, irrelevant information. So, for example, if you're listening to speech with a lot of background noise, you could think of it as the ability to um, block out the ambient noise that you don't want to pay attention to and focus instead on the uh, message that's being said. Um, and also, in, in the context of a speech signal, it could be simultaneously processing formal properties of the language, um, grammar and the structure of uh, an utterance, and also at the same time attending to meaning what's being said. So uh, again, we weren't able to predict the exact nature of the... We did think that uh, attention control would have some bearing on the scores that raters assign, um, but we weren't sure about the way it would go. So you could think that raters who are more sensitive, who, are, who basically allocate attention um, more efficiently, um, 
and so they're switching between different dimensions uh, with greater efficiency might be more sensitive to the um, extra processing or shift costs imposed by second language speech. Um, And this could lead to harsher judgments of the speech. Uh, On the other hand, if they're switching their attention seamlessly between different dimensions, um, that could lead, it could facilitate their ability to understand the speech, for example, and this could lead to more lenient ratings of the speech. The third cognitive variable we uh, examined is musical ability. Um, In this context, we defined musical ability as it was defined in a a standardized test of musical aptitude as the ability to hear or internalize um, music that is no, no longer present in the physical environment. Now, um, there has been uh, quite a bit of research, um, somewhat contradictory research, on the um, relationship between um, musical ability and the ability to learn a language. Um, but um, basically, uh, there is some first language speech per- perception research that has found that um, musicians pro- uh, experience processing pitch can positively transfer to uh, their perception of speech. Um, In the context of second language studies, uh, the findings have been a bit more mixed. Some studies have identified no relationship between um, musical ability um, and the perception and production of speech. Um, Others have that, uh, you know, there is a facilitative effect in terms of um, pitch and other dimensions uh, for people who have uh, musical experience. So um, on the basis of the previous literature, uh, we hypothesized that raters who uh, had greater musical ability would uh, judge the speech um, less favorably than uh, people who had less uh, musical ability or experience. So we thought that musical raters would be more sensitive to certain aspects of the speech signal um, related to pitch or voice quality that could cause them to assign um, more severe ratings um, because they would be more sensitive to those dimensions that people who um, didn't have uh, musical uh, as much musical ability or experience with might not... Um, attend to in the same way. So um, let's just now, so those were the three cognitive abilities that we examined. Now let's turn to the uh, three second language speech measures that we examined. So um, these are um, constructs that are uh, often rated in the context of second language pronunciation assessment literature. Um, The first speech measure that we looked at was accentedness, referring to the deviation of the accent of the second language speaker's accent from the standard language norm. Okay, then we looked at comprehensibility. So this was a measure of how easy the speech is to understand based on listeners' perceptions of uh, effort in, in processing the speech. And then we looked at fluency, which referred to listeners' judgments of how smoothly or rapidly an utterance is spoken, um, so without undue pauses or hesitations. So the speakers in the study were 40 adult uh, French speakers from uh, Quebec, which is the French primarily French-speaking province in Canada. Um, Overall, uh, they'd been exposed to English from quite a wide range, from, you see, from uh, 0 to uh, 17 years of age, so they were quite variable. Um, These these next measures are uh, self-report measures. Um, They judged 
their English language profici proficiency, that's their proficiency in their second language, um, this was using a nine-point scale, so they uh, assigned from one to nine. So we've got the entire level of proficiency represented here based on these self-ratings. Um, and they spoke, on average, uh, English, their second language, only 20% of the time. But as you see, again, in brackets, the range there was quite wide. So we had quite a variable group in terms of the non-native speakers, um, their English language use. And um, we used a speaking prompt commonly used in second language um, pronunciation research. This is an eight-frame picture narrative um, that uh, Derwing and her colleagues have used. Um, so the, raters, uh, the speakers had a few seconds to familiarize themselves with the uh, picture sequence and then um, were audio recorded um, with their rendition. Now, the Raiders were 60 undergraduate students at an English medium university in Canada. Half were music majors, so they were studying um, music at this university. Um, and, um, you know, they, uh, on average, had about 10 years of studying their primary instrument. Many had second or third instruments that they were studying. Um, and um, the vast majority had formal training in another instrument as well. And then we had... Uh, the other half, who were non-music majors, so they were people from other, um, studying other disciplines, but not music and not anything related to language also. Um, on average, they'd studied music, uh, you know, for less than the musical group of writers. Um, and uh, we had eight that had no musical training at all within that group. So there was a range of um, musical experience within the group of non-music majors, but it was fine in our study to look at that range and consistent with our goals. So um, we matched the music majors and the non-music majors for language um, background and use variables. Now, they were um, native English speakers um, who primarily used English. Um, this is, again, self-report data, so 92% of the time. Um, used English, and uh, only a small proportion of the time spoke French. That was the language they were, the language of the first language learners that they were assessing. Um, and uh, the um, French language proficiency was moderate. This is a ranking on a nine-point scale, with one being uh, the lowest and nine the highest. So... Um, in the procedure, we had raters listen to the first 20 seconds of the picture narrative, the suitcase narrative that you saw, um, and we removed all initial disfluencies from the beginning of the narrative. They were presented in randomized order, and then we had them rate the speech samples using nine-point numerical rating scales. Um, these are the scales that are typically used in second language pronunciation research and what is increasingly a convention. Um, you see that the... Uh, Scale endpoints have, uh, in, at the scale anchors, we have descriptors. So for accentedness, heavily accented, not accented at all. The second one is comprehensibility, very easy or very difficult to understand. And then very disfluent, very fluent for fluency. Um, so the raters in this research context are not given that much guidance about what these constructs mean. They're simply given these uh, scales, and then they're asked to rate um, the speech based on these three dimensions on the separate scales. Okay, um, so let's now look at how we operationalize these different uh, rater cognitive abilities. Um, so the first one was phonological memory. Um, so the participant would hear a sequence, a non-word sequence of five to seven 
non-words, and they'd have to say whether the order was the same or different. So I'll play the audio file, and uh, you can tell me whether you hear the same or a different order. Same order? Okay. And then let's do the next one. Okay, I think probably, whoops. <laughs> Very charming. Um, I think you all heard that the order there was different, so there was one item that was displaced. Um, so again, they heard these non-word sequences. And then uh, phonological memory was operationalized as the number of uh, sequences where the order was correctly recognized. So notably, this was not a production task. Okay, This was a um, recognition task. So they only identified whether the sequence was the same or different. Um, they didn't actually produce the, utterance, the um, sequence. So it was a recognition task. Okay, so then for um, attention control, we used um, the trail-making test. Um, and uh, basically, this is a dot-to-dot exercise. So um, this is just a sample here. You'd have um, time A. There were 25 different numbers, okay? And um, the uh, rater would have to... This was a timed task, and the rater would essentially have to um, draw a line from the numbers in consecutive order, okay? So that was the baseline measure, And then um, we had an attention switching measure, so where they're switching between two different um, dimensions here, where they switched between um, numbers and letters. So they had to go 1A, 2B, et cetera. Okay, so they were just switching between stimulus dimensions. And the measure of attention switching capacity that we used in this study was time B minus time A. And then we um, operationalized musical ability using the musical aptitude profile, and we drew on three different subtests. We looked at melody, tempo, and phrasing. They were all played by a violin, um, and uh, I'll play you an example. So this was uh, an example from the melody subtest. So you're going to hear a musical question followed by a musical answer, and I want you to tell me whether it's the same basic song, okay? So the question here is whether the overall melodic contour of the first one is the same as the second one. Okay, so let's see how we do here. Oops. Same basic song? Okay, yeah, I got some people nod yes. Very good. Okay, here's the tempo one. Now, again, you're going to hear a musical question, a musical statement, and musical answer, and I want you to tell me whether the tempo is consistent. Okay, yeah. Anybody want to guess there? No. Okay. Yeah, I think that one's quite obvious. All right. Now, this one is um, a measure of musical sensitivity. Okay? So you're going to hear um, the same rendition, the same musical excerpt played twice. And uh, I want you to say which one sounds better. Okay?
Okay, so which rendition is more musical? Um, show of hands for the first one. Okay, who liked the second one? Okay, yeah. <laughs> I think there are problems. It's supposed to be uh, the second one, um, which arguably this was a test developed in the 1960s. So, um, and I, I find it kind of schmaltzy. Um, but it, it was uh, one that we decided to incorporate to see whether it would um, discriminate between the music majors and the non-music majors. Okay. And so here are the results, actually, um, just um, to start with some preliminary results. So we looked at um, all three subtests of the musical aptitude profile and found that they significantly distinguished between the music majors and the non-music majors, with music majors, as you'd expect, outperforming the uh, non-music majors. Um, as you see there, the musical sensitivity test, that's the last one that we did, um, the third one down there, phrasing, was... Um, it was significant, but it was not as good at distinguishing between music and non-music majors than the other two, the melody and the tempo um, subtests. Okay, so again, music and non-music majors were different um, based on uh, their musical aptitude scores. Okay, and uh, we also just looked at the composite measure. We took, we just summed the, the three scores. Okay, um, so we then wanted to look at whether the other two radar cognitive variables that we looked at, phonological memory and attention control, um, distinguish between music and non-music majors, and we found no significant differences um, so in those two cognitive variables. So the music and the non-music majors were only different in their musical ability, as we'd intended, not in the other two cognitive variables. Okay, then we wanted to look at radar consistency, um, as a function of uh, university major status. So we conducted intra-class correlations um, separately for the music majors and the non-music majors, um, and we found um, coefficients of 0.98 to 0.99, suggesting that they were quite high um, and certainly acceptable in a research context. So uh, both groups of raters um, overall were eternally, internally consistent in their ratings, and there didn't seem to be differences there. Um, okay, so then to the research questions. Um, firstly, investigating whether um, the ratings of second language speech um, depend on or are related to phonological memory. Um, to investigate this, we pooled the non-music majors and the music majors' ratings, um, and then we divided them, the whole group of uh, raters, the 60 raters, into high versus low uh, memory span groups based on a median split on their score um, on the Barch-Teague-Nakuk task, okay? Um, and then uh, we basically conducted the analyses based on Raider's mean scores for each speaker. And we found, surprisingly, no differences um, between the high phonological memory and the low phonological memory group. So it appears, based on this, that phonological memory does not have bearing on the scores that Raiders are assigning. Uh, we did follow the same process for attention control. We divided the raters, so again, the pooled music and non-music majors, into more and less efficient attention control groups based on a median split. And again, we found no difference between um, raters who process speech um, in terms of their attention more efficiently versus those who are less efficient. Um, and uh, you see here that there's a trend for people who have greater attention control, okay, so who are more efficient, 
um, at allocating attention in assigning lower scores. Okay, there's a slight trend to this, but there are overlapping error bars. So again, a non-significant difference. Um, and we can say based on this that, again, attention control, like phonological memory, doesn't appear to uh, exert an influence on the scores that raters are assigning second language speech, at least based on the measures that we operationalized here. Um, now, in terms of musical ability, again, we found that all three subtests of the musical aptitude profile efficiently distinguished um, music majors and non-music majors. They discriminated between those groups. So uh, we decided to keep our initial grouping of music and non-music majors and compare differences in those groups. And um, here are the results of the t-tests. Um, we found that overall, music majors assigned significantly um, lower scores than non-music majors uh, solely for accentedness, so for how different the speaker sounds compared to the language speaking norm, uh, the language, the native speaker norm, and um, the differences for uh, comprehensibility and fluency were non-significant, although again, music majors assigned uh, overall lower scores than non-music majors. So it appears here that um, people who have more musical training and experience and perhaps aspire to be musicians, um, professional musicians, are significantly um, harsher in their judgments than people who are less musically experienced. Okay. Um, we then reanalyzed the data using um, cross-classified multi-level models. Uh, we used the software MLWIN to look at um, cross-classifications, and in, in particular, we looked at um, our Monte Carlo uh, MCMC estimation. Um, and the bottom line here is that we got identical results. So we found no differences in the, the fixed effects um, for that. That is, there were no um, significant main effects for phonological memory and attention control. Again, they were non-significant. Um, we did find, though, that music majors, again, were more severe solely for accentedness than non-music majors, so uh, identical results. Um, in the next slide, I'm going to present um, the results of a model, um, just very briefly, um, where accentedness was the outcome measure, the, the rated variable. And um, we looked at uh, university major, music major, uh, or non-music major status as the sole predictor variable. Okay, um, so in the fixed part of the model, we found that non-music majors um, assigned accent ratings on average 0.58 higher on the nine-point scale uh, than non-music majors. So again, replicating that um, non-music majors are more lenient in their scoring as compared to music majors. Um, in the random part of the model, we found that only about half of the variability um, in, in the score was attributable to differences between the speakers themselves, okay? So, um, and you see that the variability attributed to differences between raters in the score that was assigned was quite 22%, so that's due to rater effects in the score for accentedness. Um, this, is, this, is, this suggests, I mean, the raters in this study were um, untrained raters, and again, we're using very crude scales, nine-point rating scales, uh, and uh, they were provided with no um, definition of the construct other than the uh, descriptors at the scale anchors, so very accented, not accented at all. So I think that accounts for um, some of the rater effects that come into play here. 
Okay, so then just um, zooming in a little bit further in terms of the significant result for accentedness um, as a function of musical experience, we wanted to look at this further, um, and we wanted to look at whether, in particular, music majors are penalizing or seem to be assigning lower scores for um, non-native speakers at a, at a particular language proficiency Group. So what we did was we um, took an independent measure of their access. This was based on a previous study where we had a different group of raters um, who assigned um, accentedness uh, ratings. Okay, and so we took a combined measure of these accented ratings from an independent group of raters as well as their speaking rate. Okay, so we combined these two measures to produce some independent measure of their pronunciation, okay? And um, on the basis of this independent measure, we then grouped the speakers into low, hot, sorry, uh, into low, medium, and high uh, pronunciation ability group, okay? And we wanted to look at the differences um, as a function of uh, uh, second language learner proficiency. And as you see here, we found that music majors um, assign significantly lower scores uh, for low ability and high, uh, sorry, low ability and medium ability uh, learners, okay? So they seem to be penalizing learners at the low end of the ability continuum, okay? So the differences were relatively masked for the high ability learners. It seems that the differences were mostly in the lower end of the spectrum, Okay. Um, we wanted to look at also at the relationship between these three different constructs, the speaking measures, accentedness, comprehensibility, and fluency, as a function of um, university major status. So we conducted those correlations separately, and we found that overall... Um, now, accentedness, remember, refers to uh, the deviation of the accent from the standard language norm. Okay, So it's how different someone sounds from a native speaker. Okay, comprehensibility simply refers to how easy the speech is to understand. Now, um, from a pedagogical standpoint, comprehensibility, or this notion of ease of understanding second language speech, is far more important than how accented someone sounds, um, because ultimately you need to be able to be understandable to your interlocutor in order to communicate a message effectively. Um, in the context of the speakers of this, in this study, um, you didn't need to sound like um, a non like a native speaker and to um, efficiently communicate with colleagues um, or do anything like that. So um, we think that comprehensibility is a much more important construct than how accented someone sounds. Um, and we found overall that music majors, for music majors, these dimensions... Okay, they're independent dimensions, um, partially overlapping, um, but we're much more distinct. Okay, so you see correlation coefficient of 0.47 there as compared to non-music majors where these notions of accentedness and comprehensibility are much more similar statistically. Okay, so music majors are making or attending to some aspects of the speech it seems that non-music majors don't seem to be attending to, resulting in these more independent dimensions of how accented someone sounds and how comprehensible someone sounds. Okay? So I think there are implications here for the way that constructs are operationalized in speaking scales. So comprehensibility, again, this notion of 
ease of understanding non-native speech and accentedness are often conflated in rating scale descriptors. Um, this is from this is a descriptor from the highest level of the Cambridge ESOL Common Scale for speaking. We have pronunciation is easily understood. That's comprehensibility, right? Many features are native-like. Then you have this reference to the native speaker standard within the same scale. Um, now, of course, there are many speakers who um, are completely comprehensible who might have an accent, a perceptible accent, okay? uh, whereas the reverse is not the case. So I think uh, there, there's a need to tease apart these different um, dimensions of accentedness and comprehensibility in rating scales so they're not confounded in the same scale descriptor. And again, I think comprehensibility is by far the most important construct um, to look at. Um, you know, accentedness, how accented someone sounds might be important um, if you're applying for a job to be a, a, an intelligence agent or something and you need to mask your identity. But for uh, other purposes, such as integrating into society, um, you know, performing uh, well on the job and communicating effectively, you don't actually need to sound like a native speaker. Um, so the goal, I think, in, in the research that we're doing is to describe comprehensible speech at the high end of the ability continuum without resorting to this reference to the native speaker. Okay, so um, an implication of this finding is that musicians might be the best people to ask to tease apart these different dimensions so that they're not conflated, particularly at the high end of the scale. So I'm doing some separate research looking at this at the moment. Okay, so um, just to recap and then um, summarize uh, the results here. In the present study, again, the goal was to examine the relationship between individual differences in rater cognitive um, variables. We looked at three cognitive variables, um, phonological memory, attention control, musical ability, um, on rater judgments of speech. And again, we looked at those three rated speech dimensions in the study. Um, this was the first study to do this as far as I know. In fact, one of our applied psycholinguistics reviewers called this a pioneering study, which was kind of nice. Um, and overall, though, we found that there was no relationship between the ratings of second language speech and two of the cognitive variables. So there were no, there were no significant findings for phonological memory or attention control, which we found actually to be quite surprising. But the reason for this... so. Ultimately, we found here that listeners' rating of second language speech do not appear to be influenced by individual differences in raters' phonological memory and attention control, at least in the way that these measures were operationalized in this study. We did find a relationship between um, musical experience, right, music and non-music major status, and accentedness ratings, where university-trained uh, musicians rated accentedness significantly more severely than non-music major majors. Um, and this was especially the case for um, second language speakers who had low pronunciation ability. So um, based on this, but of course we found no differences for comprehensibility or uh, fluency, so the differences solely existed in these accent ratings. Um, so it appears based on this that accent ratings are susceptible to uh, effects of individual differences in raters' musical ability. Now, overall, we were kind of reassured by these findings, okay? So um, 
we don't feel that individual differences in phonological memory and attention control, at least based on the findings in this study, um, threaten the validity of speaking assessments. These are construct irrelevant sources of variance that we thought might interfere with Rader's judgments of speech, but on the limited basis of the evidence that we found in this study, um, that doesn't seem to be the case. Okay, So this is reassuring that you wouldn't have a Rader who has more efficient attention control versus less efficient attention control, whichever rater you chance on, that you'd get a higher or lower score. We found it reassuring that those variables seem to have no bearing on these judgments. Um, from a research standpoint, uh, we were quite intrigued by the fact that there was no effect. Um, and we, ha- we came up with some possible explanations. Um, for phonological memory, we looked at... Um, phonological memory essentially is what it's termed. So it's phonological, looking at um, speech, uh, different sound patterns. Um, And um, we found that that didn't play a role, but instead what might play a role in listeners' perceptions of second language speech and what could maybe account for some difference between raters is um, acoustic memory. So rather than looking at sound patterning, looking at um, acoustic or phonetic aspects of speech. Okay, so if there was perhaps, and Cohen and his colleagues talk about this, um, notion of acoustic memory rather than phonological memory. So that uh, measure of acoustic memory might be better at distinguishing between and getting at some rater differences. Now, in terms of attention control, um, arguably the task that we gave raters was not one that was very cognitively demanding. Right? They were native speakers. Um, there wasn't a great deal of um, processing load. They listened to the speech sample and simply used a numerical rating scale. So it could be that with a more cognitively complex task um, that we could have seen some differences uh, in terms of attention control. Now, again, the, the major finding here was that musicians uh, assigned significantly lower scores only for accentedness. Um, and we think that this finding is very interesting from uh, a research perspective. Um, so it, beckons, uh, it bears the question of which aspects of speech are musicians more sensitive to. Um, preliminary findings in a, a follow-up study suggest that it could be that they're more sensitive to melodic components of speech. Okay. Um, but we think that at the moment, as things stand now, the implications for uh, high-stakes assessments um, are limited. So there is no indication, based on the evidence from this study alone, that raters should be screened for their musical ability or that you should try to recruit a musically hom- hom- homogenous group of raters um, you know, for your speaking assessments. Uh, much more research needs to go into things before we come to that kind of conclusion. Um, There are some reasons for this. Um, We found that the results of this study were not very statistically robust, so the accent finding is interesting, but yielded a relatively small effect size, okay, for the differences between music and non-music majors uh, for accent, um, which suggests that differences in accent perception among raters might not actually translate into 
um, differences in the ratings of overall speaking proficiency. Um, as mentioned earlier, most applied linguists um, don't regard accent reduction as an appropriate goal for second language teaching or by implication assessment, so accent is not as important as other dimensions like um, comprehensibility and fluency. And incidentally, um, accent is not a, a criterion in um, either the IELTS or TOEFL, so um, you know, so I think probably we could have been more alarmed if we'd found a significant effect for comprehensibility or fluency, but for accent, it's not, we're not, we weren't really that concerned. So I think in future research, there is an urgent need to examine the effects of uh, musical ability and musical experience. Now, musical ability and musical experience were a bit confounded in this study. I think uh, future research needs to do a better job of teasing these apart. Um, but we need to examine effects on intelligibility, okay, which is um, commonly um, narrowly defined as listeners' actual rather than perceived understanding of speech. Um, so instead of uh, having it operationalized in ratings, as is done for comprehensibility, uh, it's generally operationalized by the proportion of correctly transcribed words that a rater is able to, or that a listener is able to um, produce on the basis of uh, non-native speakers' speech sample. So we think that looking at intelligibility, now if we found that raters, music and non-music majors, uh, were different in their ability to actually understand speech on the basis of a measure like this, the number of correctly transcribed or proportion of correctly transcribed words, then that would be a cause for alarm, right? Because then they're understanding different amounts of speech. Um, so at the moment, I think, um, you know, the implications for high-stakes assessments are limited, but lots of future research needed. Thank you. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.